your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Our children can head out there. Yes, that's right. I said Hebrews chapter 12. I know we spent quite a bit of time, it seemed like maybe in, in chapter 11, uh, but the time has arrived to move to chapter 12, and I'm sure you're all rejoicing for that. <clears throat> We're going to look just at the first two verses here of Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. We're all familiar with that expression, I'm sure. Uh, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, it's used about different things, right? I've heard it in a lot of different contexts. I've heard it said, I'm, I'm a sports fan, so a lot of my analogies come from the sports world, but baseball is finally wrapping up its season. It was a shorter season this year, but, but typically it's said about the baseball season that it is not a sprint, it's a marathon. As a Cincinnati Reds fan, I, I can attest to the fact that a team can look very, very good for a few weeks. A team can look very, very good, maybe even for a month, but the baseball season is not like some other seasons. It's not short. It's a long season. It's a marathon not a sprint. And the final determination or the final evaluation about how your baseball team does will not be over a period of weeks or even a month, but over the entire season, and, and you've got to press on. I've heard that statement said about parenting as well. It's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. We all go through those seasons, don't we, with our children? And, and hopefully there are short seasons, sometimes they're good seasons, sometimes they're challenging and difficult seasons, but we remind ourselves sometimes when, when, when we're in the midst of one of those difficult seasons with our children, parenting is a marathon, it's not a sprint. The evaluation and determination on my parenting and how my children turn out is not determined based on this month or maybe even sometimes this year, right? Uh, it's, there's a bigger picture to it. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. The life of faith, the life of being a Christian is a marathon. It's not a sprint. That's kind of the, the point here of this text. The fact that at a single moment or, or a time over a short period of time, you appear to be running the race of faith well does not mean uh, that, that that's the final evaluation of it. You know, if I were to stop and think about and reflect on, and perhaps you could probably do that, especially if you've been in church for some time, the number of people who have made a profession of faith and, and look to or appear to be running the race of faith only to at some later point fall away or stop running, uh, we could probably compile a very, very long list. We could perhaps even think about our, our membership role and just looking at the numbers of people through the years who have come just to Union Baptist Church at some point and said, I'm a believer, I'm following Christ, and some of them are not here now. 
And that's because the life of faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. We must persevere. We must continue to believe and continue to follow Christ. The Apostle Paul thought of this way, and, and we see this kind of illustrated with the Galatians. He writes to the Galatians. They had heard the gospel and made a profession of faith. They had believed in Christ or at least professed their faith in, in, in Christ. But now Paul's writing this letter, this epistle to them, because some of the Galatians are, are, seem to be falling away from the truth. In Galatians 1.6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you now that you had professed faith in Christ and now you see, appear to be going in the other direction? And then in chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You, you look like you were running the race. You look like you were running the race of faith, that you were following Christ, but now it appears that someone has put up an obstacle, someone has blocked your way. It appears that you have been hindered from running the race. You see, the, the Christian life, the, the life of faith, isn't just about starting, it's about finishing. That, that's all important. A lot of people can start a marathon. Not many people can finish a marathon. Many people can run 100 meters or, or maybe even a mile, but, but few of them have the endurance and the strength to go 26.2 miles, which is the distance of a marathon. And that's the way that we need to think about the Christian faith. It isn't simply about making a profession or starting in the life of faith, but we are called to persevere and to endure, to continue to run the race. That's really what we see here, what we're called to in these two verses, it's the main command in, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, is in verse number 1, where it says that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Everything else in that, in, in that passage is kind of telling us the how and the why we are, are to run with endurance, but the command that we're given this morning in, the, in these two verses is that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. When we talk about running with endurance, we're, we're talking about the idea of persevering in the faith, continuing to believe in Christ, continuing to trust in Christ, continuing to follow Christ throughout the remainder of our life. That's what the race is. It's our life. However long that race may be, whatever kind of course it is, whatever kind of trials or difficulties, we are called to persevere and to continue in the faith. We know that this really is the main theme of Hebrews. This should be no surprise to us at this point, right? The theme of the book of Hebrews is a call to perseverance. It's a call given to people in the original audience who, who were beginning to waver, who were beginning to struggle. They were facing some trials, and, and it was beginning to look appealing to them to kind of drift away, to maybe give up on their faith and go back to their life of Judaism. But, but Paul, or the, the apostle, rather, the writer of Hebrews here, is encouraging them to persevere. It's the theme of the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 12. You remember, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Do you remember this? If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you hold that confidence in Christ to the end. You made a profession of faith. Praise the Lord. That's encouraging. Persevere. Finish the race. That's what we're called to do. And it's only those who persevere to the end who share in Christ. That's what he's saying here. And so this word of, of warning kind of comes with, uh, with, with some, some caution needed. We could look at, as well to other places throughout the, the book of Hebrews, like chapter 6, verse 12, that he says that he wants them to have the full assurance of hope until the end, and that we are to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The, the promises of God come through those who patiently endure. Well, that was also one of the themes in chapter 11 that we just came out of, right? When he's going through all of these great men and women of faith, he, he reminds us in chapter 11, verse 3, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. The examples of people from the Old Testament that he points to in, in chapter 11 is, is all meant to show us people who persevered, people who ran the race all the way. They didn't run five miles of the marathon and stop. Uh, they, they, they didn't run 10 miles of the marathon and then turn around. No, no, no. Their, their race that God set before them, they ran all the way to the end. They persevered, and that's what you and I must do as well. The, the baton, in a sense, if we're talking about a race, it's been passed to us now. You notice in, in these verses he says here that there's a race that has been set before us. It's our race now. Abraham ran his race. Enoch and Moses and Noah and the prophets, and Jer uh, uh, Joshua and Moses. I, I'm drawing a blank there of the name that was coming to my mind for a second. But, but all of these, they finished their race. And now there's a race that's been set before you, your life. And it's your turn. You hold the baton in your hand and you must run the race. You notice here, I, I like the, the way he expresses it here. It's a race that's been set before us. Of course, it's God who sets the course. It's, it's God who's marked out our course, and your course may be slightly different. My course might look a, a little different. Your course may have a, a few more hills and, and valleys, a few more challenges than, than someone else. But, but all of us have a race set before us. And, and no matter the differences or the distinctions in our race, the, the end game is still the same. No matter what, all of us must complete the race. All of us must persevere to the end. I, I hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. If you're going to be saved eternally, you must persevere. You must continue believing until the end, right? That's big stuff. That's important truth that you need to hear and believe and understand. This race requires endurance. The, even the fact that we're calling it a race, it, it gets to the idea that this requires some exertion, but this isn't just a sprint, right? It, it isn't just a, a little bit of exertion for a moment, for a brief period of time, right? That's what, like the 100 meter or the 50 yard dash. I mean, you could just 
take off and give a burst of exertion, a, a burst of energy for, for a few seconds, and then it's over. But that's not the way the Christian life is. It, it requires exertion. It requires work. It requires effort. But for an extended period of time, you must run with endurance. It speaks to the challenge of it, doesn't it? Why, why do we need this encouragement this morning? Well, because by the very nature of this challenging life, isn't there an appeal to give up? I don't know how many runners we have here. We, we've got Jared who runs with Forrest Gump, apparently. Uh, I don't know if you all saw that on Facebook. I don't know the details, and no, it wasn't me. Everybody keeps saying, was that you in that costume? Apparently, Jared was running and ran with a guy dressed up like Forrest Gump. So it was not me. Uh, but it is a good illustration for, for this morning. I hadn't even thought about it, but uh, it just came to my mind. But, but you know if you run, right, just the, the challenge it is and, and how often you think, I was going to run three miles, but I should just run a mile. A mile would be good. I could stop at a mile, and then I can still say, I ran today, and I got my run in, right? No, no, I was supposed to run three miles. And, and there's this mental game that you're playing with yourself. Maybe not Jared or Forrest Gump, but for me, uh, and not quite as good a shape as he. I, I, I've got that game in my mind. There's always this enticement, this allurement. I should just stop. I, I shouldn't run all the way a mile and a half because then I'll have, to, I'll have to run a mile and a half back. Maybe I'll just do a loop so I can run one mile, and then if I want to stop, I can stop, right? That, that's the way it is, and that's the way it is with the Christian life, the life of faith. There are many enticements. There are many allurements for us to give up. Because it isn't easy. It, it requires exertion. It, it requires energy and effort. And not just a, a short burst of energy or effort. It requires a lifetime of effort. And so we need this encouragement this morning. John Brown, the Puritan, says this uh, of this command to endurance. He says it means this, to persevere in the active discharge of all the duties enjoined on you as a Christian, notwithstanding all the difficulties and dangers to which this may expose you. If you follow Christ, if you begin to live out your faith, it will, uh, it will expose you to difficulties and dangers. He goes on to say, hold fast the faith of Christ and life, life under its influence. Let neither the allurements nor the terrors of the world induce you to turn from your course or to slacken your pace. Don't let the allurements or the terrors induce you to turn from your course or slacken your pace. There are allurements, there are terrors, there are difficulties, there are challenges, but we must persevere. But in this text, that's the command. But, it, but he doesn't merely give us a command to run with endurance, but he gives us with, uh, with that exhortation some guidance on how we might do that. Uh, the, the ways in which we might help ourselves in, in running this race. And the first thing that we see here, there, there are three. The first is this, that we are, as we're running this race, we are to find encouragement in the faithful saints of the past. Find encouragement in the faithful saints of the past. He says this in verse number one, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
He's talking about chapter 11, in which he's just spent an entire chapter going through many of the high points of the Old Testament and pointing to Moses and to Abraham and to Noah and to all of these people who have been faithful. And he's saying, look at all of these people, and now we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and now it comes to us. Let us run our race, the race that is set before us. And so I think what he's trying to do here and really what he was doing throughout chapter 11 is is that we might find encouragement in the fact that these brothers and sisters before us have completed the race and and now their lives stand as testimonies for us that we might do the same thing. I'll say this, there's a, I hope not to get lost in this, but there's a great deal of interest in this idea of a, a cloud of witnesses. Um. I think a lot of people maybe take comfort in thinking that their loved ones or other faithful Christians from the past are are looking down on them. And and sometimes there can even be an unhealthy fascination with those who profess faith in Christ for those who say that they're believers. There's sometimes an unhealthy fascination with angels and demons and spiritual things kind of intruding into this world. And I'll just say this. I don't think that is the main idea here. Even if our loved ones... And I'm not saying it certainly isn't the case, but what I'm going to show you is I think that's not the point that he's making. But even if our loved ones or saints from the past are able to look down and and see us and uh, see our, our life, that really should not be the controlling thought in our life. That is not what drives us as Christians. The fact that grandma or grandpa is watching down on us, really what drives us and what motivates us And and, and what our desire ought to be is that we want to please the Lord. There's one person who is certainly watching us. That is the Lord. And and we ought to be concerned that the way that we're living our lives is pleasing to him. And it's bringing glory to him. Paul said in Corinthians, we make it our aim to please him. And he said that whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. Of God. So the controlling thought in your life as you're seeking to be faithful is not, oh, grandpa's watching down on me, or or that or so and so from the past is is watching my life and I really need to live up to his expectations. No, no, no. You need to you need to be pleasing to the Lord. Your life should bring glory to God. And when we looked at, at this text, I'll show you why I don't think that is the case. When we look at this word witness, when you stop and think about it. There's two ways that we use the word witness, isn't there? There's a witness in terms of someone who's a spectator. You know, they witness the game. They sit in the stands and they witness what's going on on the field. They're a spectator. But there's also a sense in which the word witness uh, has, has the idea of someone who gives testimony, right? In a trial, call your next witness. And the person doesn't get up there and just sit up there and start watching. I'm, I'm witnessing you all. No, no. The, the witness gets up and talks. The witness gives a testimony. He, he bears witness. He testifies. And in fact, that is the, really the emphasis of, of this word here. It's actually, this word witness is actually the word where we get our word martyr. Uh, the, the, uh, a martyr is someone who witnesses or testifies to their faith in Jesus Christ all the way to the point of death. They, they bear witness to Christ. This is the word martyreo. And so it has the idea of, of, of one who testifies or, or 
or confesses. The, the word really isn't emphasizing the idea of being a spectator, but instead of being one who gives testimony or bears witness. Peter O'Brien says this, the emphasis falls on what Christians see in the host of witnesses rather than on what they see in Christians. So, so do you get that? It's in what we see in them, not what they're watching in us. It's not that they are watching us, but that we have already seen their testimony. They are not spectators of our lives, but we have been spectators of their lives. And isn't that exactly what he's just done in chapter 11? And that's why I think we know that this is the right understanding of what he's saying here. Isn't that what he's done? He, in chapter 11, he's not saying to us, hey, Abraham's looking down on you. Moses is watching you. Noah is, is looking over your life. You better, no, no, no. What does he say? Moses bore witness. He testified. He, he remained faithful to the Lord. Abraham was faithful. Look at his testimony. Look at his life. It bears witness to you of what a life of faith ought to be. And I think that's what this is, is calling us to. Their lives stand as a testimony or a witness to us about how we ought to run the race. If we want to think of it in, in terms of a legacy, right? There's, there's a weight, uh, there, there's sort of a compulsion when, when you stand in the line of a legacy. Like, this has been handed down to you. All of these people were faithful, and now it's your turn. Now you hold the baton. Now you must run the race. And look at all of those who have already completed the race. You do the same. Follow in that legacy. These witnesses are those whose lives stand as a testimony to encourage us to run the race. If we want to think about it in the analogy of the arena, we need to think of it in terms of looking up in the stands. And as we look up in the stands, we see all of these faithful brothers and sisters who have already finished the race, and we need to follow their testimony. We need to follow their example. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a sentimental connection with, with those who in your family or those loved ones who have passed away. But, but let me suggest to you a better motivation than the idea of envisioning, envisioning them watching over you. The better motivation is to reflect on their faithfulness and how they finish their race and you do the same thing. Do you have a grandpa or grandmother who passed away and you love them? They were, they were uh, in the faith. They believed in Christ. Well, hey, they finished their race. Let that be a testimony to you. And you do the same. Finish the race like they did. The writer wants us to take encouragement from dwelling on the fact of this great host who have already completed the race. You know, when you're going through something, when you're going through a difficulty or a trial, isn't it an encouragement sometimes to meet and to speak with somebody who's already been through that and they say I I've come out on the other side God will bring you through you know you get a ca cancer diagnosis and, and you're really struggling with that you're wrestling with that and, and then you talk to someone who's a survivor and they say hey I had the same cancer God was faithful and he brought me through isn't that an encouragement to you and that's the way we need to think about these cloud of witnesses. God was faithful to them and brought them through their life, and he will do the same for you. So look to the saints of, of the past for encouragement. The second is this. Get rid of anything that hinders you. In this life of, of faith, this race that we're running, we can look to the past saints for encouragement. The second thing you need to do, though, is to get rid of anything that hinders you. 
back in chapter 12, let me turn back there. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Get rid of every weight and sin which clings so closely. Often in this passage, people have pointed out the fact that in the, in the context, probably uh, there was some idea of the, the Olympians who, who would run. And if you know anything about that, I'm told that those runners would often do so without any clothes on at all. Uh, that probably speaks to the wickedness of their culture uh, and, and vanity of it. But, but there's also a functional purpose to that as well. Because you don't want anything to slow you down and you're running a race. Even today, as we think about runners, marathon runners and sprinters, uh, they, they wear practically nothing. I mean, they're wearing short shorts, very light clothing, because you don't want anything hindering you as you run the race. And so the, the, the command here, the, the idea here is that we would get rid of anything in our life that is hindering us, anything that is slowing us down. This word to lay aside is actually a word we've been talking a lot about on Wednesday nights. It's the word put off. It's the word in Acts 7.58. If you've been with us on Wednesdays, you know where I'm going with this, where, where uh, the, the men who were stoning Stephen took off their coats and they laid them aside uh, in order to be able to stone Stephen. And that's what we are to do. There are things in our lives that we need to put away, that we need to take off, that we need to get rid of if we're going to run this life of faith. This word put off is uh, put off is a word that's used often in the new testament to speak of the christian's obligation to lay aside sinful practices and i think that's the primary thing here he says lay aside any weight and sin some, some try to make a distinction there as if there are some things that aren't sinful but may hinder you and then of course we need to get rid of any sin but i think really the weight is the sin anything that hinders you from following christ really is ultimately sinful and I think that's what he's calling us to. And that's what we see in the New Testament. Christians, we're to be laying aside sin. We're, we're to be growing in, in our faith. And, and one of the evidences of that growth is that we're getting rid of sinful practices. We're getting rid of sinful ways of thinking. We're laying them aside. We're running this race and we don't want this stuff. We don't want this stuff holding us back. We don't want to wear stuff that's clinging to us and slowing us down and making this life of faith difficult. And so lay aside. So just listen to some of the things uh, that, that are said in the New Testament about putting off or laying aside sin. In Romans 13, 2, it says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's the same word cast off, put off, lay aside. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, it says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. There it's used two different times about putting off our old self and to put away falsehood. In Colossians 3, 8, it says this, but now you must put them all away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them away, lay them aside, put them off. James uses this same. It's not just Paul that uses this analogy of putting off. He says in James 1.21, therefore, 
put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So put away wickedness. And Peter as well uses the same analogy or the same picture. He says in 1 Peter 2, 1, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And here the writer of Hebrews with most of the other writers of the New Testament, is saying, hey, this is the obligation of New Testament believers. You are to be putting things out of your life. Do you understand? There, there are things about you, sinful practices, sinful ways of thinking that are going to slow you down. They're, they're going to impede your progress in running this race of faith. And if you don't get rid of them, if you allow them to linger, they can ultimately knock you out of the race. So get rid of them. Put them off. He says here, and we recognize it's no easy task, is it? Because he says this is the sin that clings so closely. That word uh, that, that clings so closely is a word that literally means something that encircles. It, it's used of, and, and you could think of the idea of an army who encircles a city. We get from that the, the word where we sometimes refer to sins as besetting sins. These are sins that continue to persist in our life. The, the temptation continues there. They're the sins that we, in a particular way, struggle with. We're all sinners, but some of us have besetting sins. There are particular sins that I struggle with, and another person has another kind of set of particular sins that, that are more difficult for them. They're besetting sins. And we need to put those off. Get rid of them out of your life. If you're going to run the race successfully, you must get rid of this weight from your life. Can you imagine a marathon runner who, who would go out carrying five-pound weights in each hand? You know, you, he could probably do that maybe for a few miles. But after a while, I don't care if it's just the fact that it's just five pounds, right? After a while you're not going to be able to finish a marathon, even with just five pounds. Could you imagine somebody who's going out to run a, a long distance wearing jeans? That, that, that would be trying. Have you ever tried to go out and run and, and you're wearing jeans or something that's so sweaty and it's sticking to you? and It's just so uncomfortable. Eventually it begins to wear on you. And, and the same thing with the weights. Eventually that person, their arms would begin to, to wear out and it would keep them from running the race. You can keep that sin in your life for a while, but eventually it's going to impede your progress. You need to get rid of it. It, it is a slow process, and sometimes that can be deceptive, can it? Well, I can, I'm, I'm not giving up this sin, but, but I'm still able to follow Christ. But what this is warning us of with this idea of a marathon, with this idea of running a race, is that that's going to slow you down. Eventually that is going to stop you from running the race. We need to put off anything that hinders us. What, what is it in your life this morning? As I just challenge you to be thinking about that. As you reflect on your life, you know what your besetting sins are. You know what you're, what you're struggling with. And, and I would just encourage you, if you're going to finish this race that is a marathon, you need to get rid of that. And I'd encourage you right now, maybe write it down in your Bible, maybe just take a mental note to say, I'm going to do battle with that. I'm laying aside that hindrance right now. Thirdly, this morning, if we're going to finish the race, though, we need to focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. So therefore, since we're surrounded by 
So great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And now verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What these verses tell us about Jesus, it, it, it calls us to look on Jesus and, and to fix our eyes on him. And the reason that is, is because that Jesus is the ultimate example of the life of faith. It says here that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of faith. He's the founder and perfecter of faith. That word founder, some people take that and, and say, well, Jesus is the one who gives us our faith. He's the one who, who starts our faith for us. It, our faith is a gift from him. And of course, we know that's true. But again, I don't think that's what this, this means here. Uh, I don't think he's saying that he starts our faith. Instead, this word founder is a word that could be translated a pioneer or, or a trailblazer. The idea is of someone who goes first. They're, they're the first one to go down that path, and they show us the way, right? That's what a pioneer or a trailblazer is. And you also notice in this verse it says, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word our really is, is not there. It's just simply the founder and perfecter of faith. So the founder means that he's the first one. He's the, he's the pioneer of the life of faith. He's the one who did it first. He's the one who did it completely and perfectly. And that's the second word. He's not only the founder of this life of faith, but he's also the perfecter. This is the this means is is the one who brings it to completion. He's the one who finished it. Yeah, there are others who did that. We looked at we looked at this, right? Abraham and Moses and Noah and so forth, all of these of the Old Testament, but none of them lived the life of faith perfectly. Right? We talked about that in, in Hebrews chapter 11. All of them sinned. Yes, Abraham was a man of faith. He was also a man who lacked faith at some times. Right? He didn't live the life of faith perfectly. But Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of the life of faith. He is the one who, who obeyed God and lived faithfully to his heavenly Father from start to finish in his life, and he did it perfectly and completely. He's the, he's the trailblazer of the life of faith, and he's the perfecter. He's the one who brought it to completion. A couple people say this same thing. Uh, commentator Zane Hodges says this, the word author was used in chapter 2, verse 10, and suggests that Jesus pioneered the path of faith Christians should follow. He also perfected the way of faith since he reached its end successfully. Albert Barnes says this, the expression then does not mean properly that he produces faith in us or that we believe because he causes us to believe whatever may be the truth about that, and that is true, but that he stands, this is what it means, that he stands at the head as the most imminent example that could can be referred to on the subject of faith. It means that he is the completer as well as the beginner, the last as well as the first. So this morning, you need to look at Jesus because he is the supreme example of the life of faith. He's the pioneer, the trailblazer who set the course of the life of faith. He's also the one who perfectly completed the life of faith. And so we look to him this morning. 
And when we do, we, this is what we see. First of all, Jesus lived by faith in God's future promises. That's nothing new, is it, from, from these chapters? This is the same thing that's said about the saints from, from the Old Testament. Jesus lived by faith in God's future promises. It's a recurring theme. All the people of faith endured temporary struggle right now in the difficulty of life by looking to the future promises of God. That's how we live the life of faith. It's how Abraham did it. It's how Moses did it. It's how Noah did it. And, and most fully and perfectly, it's how Jesus lived his life. He went through trials. He went through suffering. He went through difficulty. And the way that he continued to run the race is by looking to the end, by looking to the promises of God and having faith and trusting in God's promises. And Jesus did that perfectly. Jesus is the preeminent example. I, I said this, but, but we could just see in, in chapter 10, verse 34, that this is a recurring theme uh, with this idea of faith. In chapter 10, verse 34, it says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What would encourage someone to run the race through that? Your property is being confiscated. You're, you're, you're facing trials. How do you keep running with your faith in the Lord in the middle of that? Well, he says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They can take my house. They can take my car. They can take my money because Jesus has something for me in the end that is far better than any of this stuff that's fading away in this life. That's how you run the race through that. That's how they did it. Chapter 11 Verse 24 is the same idea. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up all of that. Instead, he chose to be uh, mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. There was a lot of pleasure to be had in being Pharaoh's son and, 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 or grandson. And, and Moses gave all of that up in order to identify with God's people what would lead somebody to run that course? Why, why would Moses choose that path, which was clearly, in terms of earthly things, was not the better path? Well, he says this, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. You see, he's got his eyes focused on the future. Jesus it's the preeminent example of this. I've already said that, but when we think about the life of Christ, what would lead Christ to leave the glory of heaven and to lay aside all of these rights and privileges, or at least his use of them, and, and, and come and be born as a baby in a stinky manger and then to live among sinful people and then to, to preach and teach and heal and do all of these miracles, but only to be rejected by his own people and to be beaten and to be mocked and to be crucified. What would lead Christ to do that? What, what would lead him 
in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas had betrayed him and all of the other disciples were getting ready to flee away from him, what would lead him and what would give him the resolve to finish the race that God had set before him to go to the cross and, and to say to the Father, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. I'll finish the race. I'm going to go all the way even though I'm going to the cross. What would lead him to do that? Look at verse 2 who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus go to the cross? What, what compelled him? What motivated him to go through such awful suffering, suffering worse than anyone has ever suffered in this life? What would lead him and compel him to do that? There was a joy set before him. The promises of God, the plan of God that he knew was coming. And so he had his eyes on the future and it, it enabled him to go to the cross. And this, this joy that was set before him, the joy of having his, a people redeemed, the, the joy of, of, of being restored in fe full fellowship in heaven with the Lord, uh, that joy was so great to him that, that not only did it enable him to suffer, but, but it enabled him to just to think of this suffering really as nothing. Look at verse number two again. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now that word despise, we read that and we probably think he really hated the shame. He despised it. But, but that word despise really has the idea of, of kind of looking at it as if it's nothing. This is nothing. He endured the cross despising the shame. This, this is nothing when you compare it to the glory that's coming. When, when you compare it to the joy that's been set before me of redeeming this people and, and so forth, all, all of that joy helps me look at this suffering in the present moment and think, you know, it's not as much as, as maybe some people would think. And that's the way Moses was. That's the way Abraham was. That's the way you need to be in your life of faith. Look to Jesus. See this example the, the suffering that you're going through right now, it seems, it seems massive. It seems difficult. The, the trials, the, the allurements, the enticements, they seem so big to you that, that it seems appealing that maybe I should just give up my faith and maybe I should walk away from Christ and go do my own thing so that I can have the pleasures of this life or so that I can relieve this suffering and just have a little bit better life, right? But when you, when you compare the sufferings that you're going through or even the enticements of the world, when you compare that to the joy that is set before you, this is nothing, right? It's nothing. It's, not a, it's, it's nothing to be uh, that shaken by. This is true for Christ. It was true for him. It's true for us as well. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Paul suffered. Paul gave up a lot. What compelled the Apostle Paul to live this life of suffering? You could read about his sufferings. Shipwrecked, beaten, in prison, ultimately loses his life, being rejected by people that, that he had preached the gospel to. What, what would compel him to do that? And he said, I, I just consider that the sufferings of this life they ain't worth even talking about when you think about the glory that's going to be revealed, the joy that is coming. 
And so I'm going to press on in this life of suffering because that suffering is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. The same idea is in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light, light, it's not very heavy. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, when you think about the suffering right now, it's light and it's momentary when you when you compare it to the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed. You, if you're going to be saved this morning, you must persevere to the end. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And you must complete that race. You've got to run it all the way to the end. You can't give up your faith. You can't walk away from the faith that you must finish the race. And if you're going to do that, there are three things that you need to do. You can take encouragement from those who have finished the race in the past. You need to get rid of anything that hinders you. And you need to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us for this race. God, there are many times in our lives when when running this race becomes a wearisome task. It, it becomes a great trial and a great difficulty. And Lord, often we know because you are in control of all things that you're leading us through these difficulties for, for the purpose of strengthening us. But we pray, God, that you would meet us in those times, that you would help us persevere, that, that you would help us to remain faithful. Help us stay in the race, God. If it's up to me, I'm, I'm not going to finish. If it's up to those of us here, we, we don't have the strength and the endurance that we need. It's only from your grace that we will be able to complete this race. I pray that you would help us to do that. Oh God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to look at his example and give us the strength to follow that example by your grace. Amen.